Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. So it's an honor to welcome Vanessa Corradera to the Adventist Voices podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to kind of jump into your biography, if you don't mind, before we talk about your scholarly work. Um, can you talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way to Andrews? Yeah, I grew up a little bit of everywhere until I was in about the third grade. I was born in California, lived in Mexico while my father finished medical school in Montemorelos, California, Texas, California, Illinois, and then finally to where I would say was home. So I grew up mostly in Central Florida from about third grade until college. And then I went to Andrews because I grew up Adventist. And my, my parents are firm believers in Adventist education and really wanted me to go to an Adventist college or university. And for a variety of reasons, which I'm happy to talk about if you want, I chose Andrews despite the snow. And I'm so glad I did. And now I teach here. So that's a really interesting background. Um, did you enjoy traveling around um, or was it something that uh, was you wanted to kind of get over and, and settle down? I was pretty happy once we settled in Florida. I am very social to this day, and I really value relationships. And it was really hard to move all the time. It was about every two and a half to three years and leave my friends. And moving from California meant leaving family. And it was all because of uh, schooling and medical school and residency. So I'm really grateful for the life my parents' education gave me. But I was super happy when we finally were able to stay somewhere longer than three years once we landed in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. I think folks. And then all my family moved, too. So it was great. Oh, yeah. That is helpful. So um, folks who kind of move around a lot, I think, um, pick up a lot of uh, perspectives. That's one of the benefits, although um, there's certainly some downsides. And I'm just curious what um, that background and your time um, in uh, Central Florida. When you came to Andrews University, uh, you know, some call it the flagship of Adventist education. Usually that's administrators promoting the school. Um, what uh, what did that perspective, how did that kind of fit with what you saw in kind of rural Southwest Michigan? Well, Andrews has always been somewhat diverse. So I think the diversity has really amped up in the last, say, seven or eight years, certainly since I started working here. But I was really grateful to go to Andrews because it was not everyone came from my background. Not everyone looked like me. And that was an experience that I had experienced at my junior academy, which used to be Walker Memorial Junior Academy. It's now a full-blown academy. And it's also what I experienced at Forest Lake Academy when I was there my junior and senior years. Mm Mm-hmm. I was able to meet people from a wide range of backgrounds, a wide range of um, 
ethnic backgrounds, so socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds. And I really loved that. I thought it enhanced my spiritual experience, my social experiences, my academic experiences, because I was able to grow and develop new perspectives because I was exposed to perspectives that didn't just reflect mine. And that was something that I also got at Andrews. And I very intentionally wanted that. And so in addition to scholarships and academics, that multiplicity and diversity of perspectives was something that led me here. Yeah, I appreciated that during my time at Andrews. And I think it's one of um, the benefits of a lot of Adventist institutions is because the kind of larger Adventist denomination is so international, it brings folks into contact um, with uh, difference in a way that, you know, other um, educational institutions aspire to, but don't always uh, achieve in reality. Um, so you went on to graduate school and you um, actually focused on some of these ideas. Can you kind of take us through your journey? Yes, I went to graduate school after graduating from Andrews in 2006, and I was very well prepared, but also very green <laughs> because I went straight from undergrad into a doctoral program at Northwestern University. And I knew from the beginning that I was interested in issues of identity and diversity because that had been my honors thesis project. I had looked at this play, The Tragedy of Miriam, that I had studied in a Renaissance seminar. And I did a project on the way that that particular play imagines constructions of race and racial difference, especially along gendered lines. And so I use that as my writing sample. So from the beginning, going to grad school, I was like, this is something I'm interested. This is something I want to do. And so my classes fed into that. And essentially, my dissertation didn't focus just on gender and race. But I did think about the way the body shapes identity by thinking about physiognomy which is essentially this belief that we supposedly don't believe in anymore, but we in fact tend to use in our popular media that your physical appearance will reflect your character, whether it be moral or immoral. And I looked at how physiognomy appears in Renaissance drama. And so that's all very insider baseball, so to speak, with academia, but it's always been kind of my interest in identity, the ways we imagine it that aren't necessarily real, but we imagine it as real, the way that we interact with each other and try to read each other, if you will. Um, and I think that's something that regardless of whether you're in academia or not, you can relate to. Absolutely. Um, there's certainly, I see that um, in social media, um, try, when I'm paying attention to conversations around identity, there's still at a popular level a sense, even if it's in a kind of meme or joking way or on, um, you know, somebody's uh, Facebook feed, there's a sense that we kind of can, we know something about someone um, because of yeah. that appearance. But it also comes into Adventist history uh, through Ellen White kind of, well, endorsing a pseudoscientific version of that with phrenology back in the late 19th century. 
So I'm kind of fascinated. What sort of conclusions did you come to uh, from your uh, thinking about this? What's really interesting is we like to imagine ourselves as so much more forward thinking than the past. And in many ways we are. But what's interesting is that in the English Renaissance, right, this period that I was studying, uh, there's some skepticism about physiognomy. And I mean, they mentioned the practice specifically and how, of course, it's the most ridiculous thing to assume that you can imagine someone's moral character from that person's appearance. And at the same time, there are others like Francis Bacon who are saying this actually works and it's a pseudoscience. And he's actually calling it something like a science. And it's really interesting because even today, we would say, oh, it's ridiculous to believe that we can understand someone's moral character. Um, but some of the conclusions that I came to that we hold on to this idea because it helps us read the world when the world is not understandable, we still do it. I remember the there were, during a set of elections while I was working on my dissertation, there was this thing on the news like mapping these dots on the candidates' faces to tell if they were telling the truth or lying in any given moment. That's a version of physiognomy. And so it's really interesting how there are these cross-historical interests, even in something that, as you rightly said, would be historically considered at certain periods of pseudoscience, though in the 1800s and 1900s, it was considered a proper science. Um, and that we would say is just superstition today, but we still appeal to these ideas. So help me here, you know, at its best, it's sort of a, well, that's embarrassing that we do this sort of thing. Um, but at its worst, it sounds like it leads to a lot of the uh, stereotypes that surround um, racism. Am I right? Absolutely. So think about uh, Michelle Obama and her angry eyebrows. Mm, yeah. Right. This whole kind of discourse about her face and her angry eyebrows that came out when um, eventually President Barack Obama, but even when he was a candidate, when he was running there, there was all this conversation about whether she was angry and what she looked like and her eyebrows. So that's just a kind of tangible example of the way that we do have these ideals that surround ethnicity and race and the body that we still think about today. And I mean, and these were actually codified in scientific books in the 18 and 1900s. You can find them on Google books where the claim was made. You could measure the angle of someone's cranium and then not only be able to classify that person racially, but then also character, their character. So how smart could that person be? What industry could that person participate in? Is that person worthy of religion? Uh, so it's really interesting that we still hold on to some of those ideals, even if we're also horrified by them at the same time. Yeah, that's great. So you teach a class um, called Shakespeare and Race. Um, do you talk about some of this for your uh, undergraduates? Absolutely, we do. And we look at historical documents that imagine what the racial other, and it depends which one. So the Jew, the Moor. Uh, for just as an example, um, those are two that we examine. So what are the features, the bodily features associated with that other? How did people in the Renaissance imagine they could identify 
and then categorize that other. And then what I really liked about the last time I taught the class is that we looked at modern versions of these Shakespearean plays. And so we were able to see what remains in modern discourse from these old plays about um, what remains about race, about religion, about different forms of difference, and, and what we have decided we're no longer going to carry on into the 20th and 21st centuries, and what modern day applications of racial difference manifest that are very different from the past. So it was, it's a really fun class to teach. I really like teaching that class. Yeah, that sounds like a blast. I'm sure the students love to, uh, do you bring in a kind of a visual culture element as well? So they get to kind of think about um, interpreting images, not just the text? Absolutely. Uh, I think that keeps them very engaged. And so I will bring in stills from modern day performances, but also older performances. And we'll look at film clips. And for each of the plays that we discussed in class, we watched a version of that play, sometimes a filmed version and sometimes a filmed performance of that play. And so the students always had access to visual culture. Well, that's great. I um, would uh, love to um, sit in and see uh, how everyone reacts. Um, so let's um, maybe can you talk, a, maybe help us with some uh, technical terms um, for folks who are coming to uh, this conversation and maybe are interested, but find the language around it a bit of a minefield. Um, can you t define like a term like intersectionality and how that helps um, us uh, sort of engage in um, in understanding uh, difference? Yeah, and I I appreciate how terms are a minefield. I teach theory courses here, and at the beginning of each term, well, let me let me back up and say at the beginning of each semester, so I'm not confusing us one of the things that we do is establish what we call working terms because different theorists are going to use the same words to mean very different things. And so I always talk about that with the students. And so we kind of just establish what we're going to use as a working vocabulary so that we can actually have functioning conversations with each other. So intersectionality, intersectionality is one of these terms that had a very particular meaning when it first came out and has certainly expanded. And so Kimberly Crenshaw essentially came up with this term to think about the different pressures on African-American women and their identity. So in when, when she's writing, you have the feminist movement who's imagining a kind of monolithic or overarching idea of what it means to be a woman. But the people in charge of the feminist movement at the time are predominantly middle to upper class white women. And so there's a lot of criticism about the way that these particular feminists are not taking into account that the experience of being a woman is going to be very different if you are working class. The yeah. experience of being a woman it's going to be very different if you are African-American versus not. And so Kimberly Crenshaw talks about this and the way that there are different pressures and power structures, 
so let me restate that. There are different pressures that power structures put on women, depending on their identity and certain aspects of your identity are going to it mean even more pressure on you. So she talks about uh, she, she's, she was using law and she talks about the way that African-American women were told that in order to support kind of feminist ideals, if they were experiencing abuse at home, they would need to report their husbands or partners. But what she writes about is the way that these African-American women didn't want to do that. For many of them, they didn't want to because that would mean making their families seem to adhere to a stereotype about African-American families and dysfunctionality and black masculinity that they did not want to support. And so intersectionality is essentially a way of trying to take into account multiple perspectives and multiple influences of power and domination that come with the various forms of our identities. So now the term is much broader and we use it to think about the way that different facets of identity, gender, race and or ethnicity, class, sexuality, religion, all create multiple facets of your identity that will at times compete with each other and that will also invite different forms of privilege, but also oppression. And so it's a way of kind of thinking about the complexity of identity. That uh, was for something talking about complexity. That was uh, terrific. And um, I feel enlightened just hearing you explain it. Thank you. Is there. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. I'm glad. Is there a way um, that Adventists can use intersectionality to help them navigate the variety of identities uh, that Adventists have connected to ethnicity, socioeconomic status, ableism, uh, and of course, uh, religious identity? I think so. I actually think that Christians broadly, Adventists specifically, are called to practice intersectionality. And for some people, that might seem like a stretch, like the Bible doesn't talk about intersectionality. But the Bible does ask you to treat your neighbor as you would want to be treated. And each of us wants to be treated as a flourishing whole human. We want to be treated as someone who matters and someone who is distinct from yet related to other people. So my experience is not good. So, so let's take me and my sister. We come from the same family, same socioeconomic background, same ethnic background, and yet we're distinct people. And we want to be treated as such. And I think that that is what intersectionality means. It's treating someone how you would want to be treated. I know that sounds trite, but it is helpful in our church to be thinking about we have we say we're a world church and and we say that we're a family. I've I've heard that metaphor. But even within a family, each person has different needs and struggles and uh, talents and also limitations. And I think intersectionality with Adventism is that even within our family, we're not all the same. And for those of us, like I would consider myself with someone with a lot of privilege. I have a job. I have of 
a very elevated education. I have a lot of access to privilege within society as a white passing educated female. And it is my job then to, if I like being treated this way, to elevate my neighbor who may not be being treated this way. And that means not just looking at myself, but thinking about my neighbor's situation and his or her struggles with forms of oppression that he or she may struggle with on a day-to-day basis. I think that, sorry, that was a little long and I'm not sure if that was as specific as you wanted. So I can totally follow up. That was fantastic. And I I like how you brought privilege into that. Um, You know, I resonate with the, um, the values that you are articulating there, because I, to me, there's an element of empathy that is asked of people with a tremendous amount of privilege. And that is, uh, often as simple as not just assuming my own frames for thinking about everything from, uh, politics to, uh, policing to, um, how someone uh, dresses or what kind of music that they appreciate, much less how they connect with something like what American history means. And I, you know, when I'm at my best, I'm trying to kind of shed a lot of my own assumptions, which are built, you know, based on the privilege that I have and really put myself in someone else's place, which is, I guess what we're supposed to be doing when we're treating others as we treat ourselves. Right. I mean, think about what we're called to do. If your neighbor asks for your cloak, you don't just give a the, your spare cloak. You give the cloak off your back. Mm-hmm. If your neighbor asks you to walk one mile, you go too. So ideologically, if our neighbors are calling us for just this moment or topic Put yourself in my shoes. See from my perspective. Not only does Christ call us to respond to that call, but to go above and beyond to the point where we might be uncomfortable. That's scriptural. Mm -hmm. Take the cloak off my back. I'll go that extra mile, right? It is uncomfortable. But that is what, as Christians, we're called to do. And I think that's wonderful because I think as Christians, sometimes we can be very skeptical of say, political theory or modern theory or however you want to frame something like intersectionality, but it's actually what we are called to do. And we could be doing it better than anyone else if we were actually following what Christ has asked of us. Absolutely. And it's one of the things that gives me a little bit of hope for Adventism is uh, because of how we are... Um, kind of dispersed around the world in the way that our educational system works and kind of bringing folks together from different backgrounds. It provides a, a laboratory for doing this. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it means for you to be an Adventist educator and to and to think about um, uh, such a kind of hot uh, popular term like intersectionality in the context of what it means to kind of care about your students like Adventist educators uh, do? I think being an Adventist educator for so much, so many of us in the Adventist system is a calling and it's a mission 
the classrooms are a mission field. And to me, it's really interesting because I don't think my students always understand that when I'm teaching them something like intersectionality, for example, since that's the topic at hand, this is not just teaching them a theoretical term from critical race theory, though I am. And though it will be helpful to them if they teach or they go to grad school, it's about finding a way of not just knowing, but enacting of living my faith. And I think for so many of us in Adventist education, it's about trying to find ways to wed our faith with our intellectual interests and negotiate sometimes where those two don't overlap and where there might be tensions. But with something like the ethical treatment of someone else, how wonderful that my faith and my academic interests overlap in a way that I can feel really comfortable sharing that in the classroom. Yeah, that's great. Um, I absolutely agree. For a final question here, as you're um, looking forward to um, your work as an educator and as a published scholar, can you talk a little bit about um, kind of where your mind is going and, and what's uh, particularly interesting to you um, uh, on the horizon? I'm working on a book project right now that thinks a lot about representation and how in modern day, when we are engaging with texts from the past, so specifically Shakespeare's text, that's what my book project is about, especially Shakespeare's Othello, um, how we deploy Shakespeare to think about issues of race today. And so while that's not everything I teach, I think the kind of broader themes that I'm interested in are, th are there are what narratives about each other are we insisting on telling, especially those of those in society who have privilege, what narratives about the other, the racial other, the gendered other, the ethnic others, the socioeconomic other, you know, take your pick, uh, the religious other or whatever. Um, what narratives are we insisting on telling and retelling and why? in our churches, in our classrooms, in our popular culture, because as much as we would like to keep all these realms separate, they aren't separate, especially not for my students. Right? So they are, you know, they're a, they are, they're engagement with popular culture informs what ideas they bring to the classroom, their experience in the classroom. It affects spirituality. Their spirituality then affects how they perceive a pop culture, etc. Right. So these realms aren't separate. And so I'm really interested in what narratives we continue to turn to and repeat and why and the ethics of those narratives, because as a Christian educator and as a Christian academic, I, I am interested in calling out narratives that are unethical. And that's really difficult because that means grappling with my own complicity sometimes, but I think that's crucial because I can't be a good teacher, a good academic and a good Christian if I don't. Yeah. Um, you know, it seems to me that um, Adventism is actually kind of focusing on hermeneutics, um, allegedly, um, for the upcoming general conference session next year. And um, I'm wondering if um, you have any 
I know I said that was a final question, but if you have any thoughts on how um, opening up our critical engagement um, to the sort of um, race, gender, sexuality informed uh, tools that you're talking about, um, I know that you're focused on Shakespeare, but it seems to me that we also we do something with um, the Bible as well in kind of picking and choosing and repeating stories. Um, and I wonder if there's if you have any thoughts on the ways that those might be reinforcing problematic um, kind of structures for our thinking. Absolutely. I know that it can get dicey because when I'm talking about Shakespeare, as much as I love Shakespeare or any other lit I teach, so it's not just Shakespeare, I'm not talking about a religious text. So when I'm talking about truth in Shakespeare, it's not the same level as we're talking about truth in the Bible, right? It's not as high stakes. Mm -hmm. That said, you know, the late Toni Morrison, who just passed away, talks a lot about that uh, she talks about in playing in the dark, the way that our interpretation of texts is not neutral. It's filtered. It's filtered through our own perspectives. And she makes a particular argument that literature in America has been predominantly filtered through the white male perspective. And that comes to what we're willing to read, who's represented, who's in the canon, etc. And I think that question of perspective is really important for the Adventist church. Perspective shapes who gets to be on the pulpit and then what comes from the pulpit. Perspective shapes the secondary sources, so the scholars used to inform hermeneutical interpretations of the Bible. Perspective shapes how people interpret texts that we don't always agree on what they mean. And so I think that we need to be open to a diversity of perspectives, not just meaning different perspectives, but also diverse people being allowed to articulate perspectives, of course, within with the leadership of the Holy Spirit and prayerful, mindful interpretation of scripture. But I think that we cannot in good conscience suggest that our hermeneutical interpretation of scripture is always neutral. You know, I just had the privilege of listening to a beautiful program last Saturday put on here at Andrews where we were uh, listening to letters and diary entries of the church founders. And They spent so much time in prayer and scriptural study, and even they didn't agree. They didn't have one unified monolithic perspective. So when it comes to hermeneutics, we can acknowledge that we are humans led by the Holy Spirit, but also fallible humans. And we need to allow the Holy Spirit to do its work by inviting perspectives to the table. And this goes back to intersectionality being generous and being generous in how we engage with those who are different from us. That uh, is a great way to end it. Thank you so much for being generous with your um, uh, understanding of intersectionality. I uh, really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Sister White. We will not fear.
the kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely 